phone with those names. <laughs> Buckle up. Um, I'm Heather. This is my um, husband, Neil, and we are the Culver. Judges 1. After the death of Joshua, the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand, and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezik. They found Adoni Bezik at Bezik and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adoni Bezik fled, but they pursued him and cut and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adoni Bezik said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem, and he died there. And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and set the city on fire. And afterward, the men of Judah went down to fight against the Canaanites who lived in the hill country, in the Negev, and in the, no in the lowland. And Judah went against the Canaanites who lived in Hebron. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, and they defeated, she they defeated Shishai and Ahiman and Talmai. From there, they went against the inhabitants of Debir. The name of Debir was formerly Kiriath Sefer. And Caleb said, he who attacks Kiriath Sefer and captures it, I will give him Aksa, my daughter, for a wife. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, captured it. And he gave him Aksa for his daughter for a wife. When she came to him, she urged him to ask her father for a field. And she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, what do you want? She said to him, give me a blessing. Since you have set me up in the land of the Negev, give me also springs of water. And Caleb gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. And the descendants of the Kenite, Moses' father-in-law, went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness of Judah, which lies in the Negev near Arad. And they went and settled with the people. <clears throat> and Judah went with Simeon, his brother, and they defeated the Canaanites who inhabited Zephath and devoted it to destruction. So the name of the city was called Hormah. Judah also captured Gaza with its territory, and Ashkelon with its territory, and Ekron with its territory. And the Lord was with Judah. And he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. And Hebron was given to Caleb, as Moses had said. And he drove out from it the three sons of Anak. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. The house of Joseph also went up against Bethel, and the Lord was with them. And the house of Joseph scouted out Bethel. Now the name of the city was formerly Luz. And the spies saw a man coming out of the city, and they said to him, Please, show us the way into the city, and we will deal kindly with you. And he showed them the way into the city. And they struck the city with the edge of the sword, but they let the man and all his family go. And the man went to the land of the Hittites and built a city and called its name Luz. That is its name to this day. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, 
or the inhabitants of Iblium and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. When Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron, or the inhabitants of Nahalol, so the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or of Alab, or of Oxib, or of Helba, or of Aphek, or of Rehob. So the Asherites lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh, or the inhabitants of Beth Anoth, so they lived among the Canaanites, the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of Beth Shemesh and of Beth Anoth became subject to forced labor for them. The Amorites pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, for they did not allow them to come down to the plain. The Amorites persisted in dwelling in Mount Herez, in Aijalon, and in Shalbim, but the hand of the house of Joseph rested heavily on them, and they became subject to forced labor. And the border of the Amorites ran from the ascent of Akrabim from Selah and upward. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bacham, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of that place Bacham, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. All right, let us pray. Dear gracious Father, thank you for the scriptures and capturing the history of Israel and the lessons that we can learn from the mistakes they made. Lord, may your character ultimately prompt us to listen to your voice, obey your commands, and in all things uh, to do your will in that which would glorify only you. Thank you for extending your grace and mercy upon us, Lord. As Lance presents the word this morning, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe. All this I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, beyond being impressed with Heather's pronunciation and enunciation of all of that, what is your impression of the book of Judges? Wow, that's exciting. Um, it only gets worse from there, just as a heads up. Um, it's going to get crazy. Somebody asked me the other day, like, what's the book of Judges about? I was like, lots of murder. Um, and we're going to see that over time. And I'll tell you, if you read or have ever read the book of Judges, you're probably wondering, how are we going to handle a few chapters? Because it is going to get dicey. It's not going to be family friendly. It's not going to be um, fit for the whole family at times. And yet we're going to find a way to disciple our families into the unsanitized reality of the scriptures. We can't sanitize it, we can't, we can't make it um, say something that we just don't like or uncomfortable with. As a matter of fact, there's language right here in the second chapter of Judges that we're going to get to next week that already we're going to go, okay, whoever's going to read that is going to get a little blushed. Um, and that's okay. 
We need to be challenged and encouraged by the scriptures in this way. So I think, though, that after, after that, some of you are probably wondering, why are we studying this book on a Sunday morning? Um, well, I have two reasons. One is theological and one is practical. First, theological. Romans 15, 4 says this. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. You have something to learn from the book of Judges. I have something to learn from the book of Judges. That, so that, through endurance, and it will feel like we're enduring some things, through endurance and through the encouragement, it will also feel very encouraging at times, of the scriptures we might have hope. The book of Judges holds out hope for us. And it may be hard to find some days, but that's the reality of what the New Testament says about the Old Testament. That's a theological reason why we're studying this book. The practical reason is that in 2022, we went through the book of Genesis, for those of you that were here. Last year in our growth groups, we doubled up on that. And though it wasn't here on a Sunday morning, it was then asked and called upon all of us who are partners to be in growth groups, right, in 2023. And we did that through the book of Exodus. What comes after the book of Exodus? You go Leviticus, and you go, why aren't we preaching on that? Because no. <laughs> not today, anyways. Maybe sometime in the future, but not right now. What, what about what's next, right? We could go through all of that, but I think what's fitting for us, and I'll summarize those books, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, Joshua even came before Judges. We'll summarize that today. We'll get an understanding of what that was all about. But really, Judges is a great place for us to pick up in this new year because it is fitting for us, especially in an election year. As we look forward, what does this really look like for the people to have no king or perhaps the wrong one? And I would submit to you, both of them, whoever they are, are the wrong one. That's not our king. It's not our hope. Right, That's the hope that will be set out for us in Judges. And we have called this particular uh, uh, series, Judges, False Gods. Now, before I understand and unpack false gods, I want you to understand what we're going to today. It is the four C's to introduce the book of Judges. But before digging into all that, it is called the false gods because the greatest threat to post-Exodus Israel... Listen, the greatest threat to post-Exodus Israel is not the nations around them. It is, not the, it is not only, though, the false gods of the people of the promised land. It is the false god in their own heart called the self, called you. The book ends like this. This is the theme of the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is not just a problem for the era of the judges. It is our problem right now. Spotify wrapped. I don't know if you got your Spotify wrapped, but uh, mine was fun. I guess you, you listen to these things. Did you guys do this with Spotify wrapped? Did you go, oh, I didn't realize I listened to so much Taylor Swift. I did. Uh, <laughs> Just kidding, I did not. Um, but I was a little surprised at the order of things. Number one on the list with some random song that my son listens to in the backyard while he's jumping on the trampoline. And I think to myself, my goodness, I have got to get him off of my Spotify. 
because now it's in the smart mix that I can't do. But it was like all, you know, some of it was worship, some of it was not worship for me. If we had to do a Spotify rap for God's people for all the millennia of God's people, do you know what the number one song would be for the Spotify rap of all of God's people? It would be Frank Sinatra's My Way. And many of you are going, I don't even know who Frank Sinatra is. Google it. My way, because Judges is going to root out for us that we like to do things our own way. We like to set ourselves up as our own king, as our own master, as our own lord, as our own savior. We do it my way. No one can tell me. And when it gets hard, I'm going to get right through it doing it my way. We are all prone to set ourselves, uh, ourselves up as false gods, and the worst part of that god is that it's me, and it's you. So here we are. We want to be our own God, our own king, and our own master, and Judges from the get-go is going to warn against all of that. So let's get to these four C's to introduce the book of Judges. And you're going, I thought preachers only preached in threes, but you get a bonus today. Aren't you excited? So here we go. Context. Some of these will be long. Others will be short. This is a long one. What is the context of the book of Judges. Well, if you read in verse 1, chapter 1, yeah, here we go. After the death of Joshua, stop. I now have to unpack for you who Joshua is and what's going on because the book of Judges, the author of Judges, who they don't really know who it is, but probably Samuel, uh, he starts with, hey, this is a sequel. Hey, this this is the sequel to something else that already happened. And so let's pick up on that other things that have happened. And so let me just unpack for you, again, starting in Exodus, for those of you that didn't go through growth groups or those that you did. If you remember those last many chapters of the book of Exodus, how many chapters, students, did you go through with the furnishings of the tabernacle? And you were were delighted. You're like, I can't wait to go back to teen growth group for some more furnishings of the tabernacle. Yes, Lord, give me more. But if you skipped that, hopefully you didn't skip the end In Exodus 40, verse 34, because I think this is a great ending to that beautiful book. Then the cloud cloud covered the tent of meeting. That's what it was all about. It was about preparation for God to dwell with you. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And no one could go in, not even God's favorite person on the planet Earth named Moses. Right? Right? That's a beautiful ending. Finally, God was with his people. But let's just summarize the rest of the books. Leviticus comes next, which is lots and lots of laws as God creates a society for the first time for his new people. You've got to have laws in a new society. Otherwise, it's chaos. And what do his laws really reflect? Other than he is a holy God. And he will not, nay cannot, condone or tolerate sin. And that sin needs payment. The problem is we're pretty sinful people. So we need a lot of law. And there's not just law on what to do and what not to do, but how do we atone for our own sin? And so there's all sorts of regulations and rules about how sin gets taken care of through the blood of animals like bulls and goat and lambs. And all this points forward in this Great summary, for I am the Lord in 1145 of Leviticus who brought you up out of Egypt, 
uh, out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. Holiness is not just about being perfect, it's about being different. And I want you to remember that as we get into the book of Judges. They're not to be the same. They're to be different, set apart for God. We go to the book of Numbers next, and this is really the story of the wandering for 40 years where God wants to bless his people. That's his posture throughout the book of Numbers, but they will not trust him. And so a great summary verse of the book of Numbers is in 1411. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done among them. Friends, if you are looking for a blessing, for a miracle, for whatever language you want to put on that in 2024, it might be in your best interest to look backwards at how God has already blessed you especially in Christ Jesus. If you are waiting to be obedient upon God until he answers that prayer, perhaps the answer to the prayer doesn't come until we look backward and become obedient to what he's already given us. Deuteronomy, before Moses' death, this is real exciting, he gives a second giving of the law. That's what Deuteronomy means. It means the law for the second time. Ooh, that's exciting. And yet Moses, uh, before, well, he goes through it, right, 11 times in the book of Deuteronomy. Again, this is important for the book of Judges. He says this 11 times, friends, purge the evil from among you over and over and over again. Purge the evil from among you. There are things happening in my people, amongst my people, that I am not having. Get it out. These are, this is God's word to Israelites to apply to other Israelites. This is God's people judging God's people. I want you to hear that because when we get into now the book of Joshua, right, we have to understand that there are conquests here. And God has a divine command for the people of Israel to now enter into that promised land that God promised to Abraham those many years before. And as he does, he tells them to do something in our world, in our day and age, how dare you, God? And we stand in our culture, and we look back, and we judge God for what happened millennia ago. Not that we would so-called forgive his sin, because he did not sin. So let's handle the whole conquest thing. Let's handle the whole genocide thing. God, you know, after all, he is a condoner of genocide please. Let's just handle that real quick. But before I do that, remember, the, the uh, summary verse of the book of Joshua is this. Be strong and courageous, verse 1 and 6, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land uh, and I, that I swore to their fathers to give to them. So this genocide thing, remember, in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 2 and 3 says this. God says to the people of Israel, you must devote them, these people in the promised land, to complete destruction. Now you can hear that and go, well that just sounds like genocide to me. He just doesn't like their culture and so they gotta be out. But let's keep reading. You shall make no covenant with them. Don't enter into treaties. That's a no-go. You shall show no mercy to them. How's that for a God that we love and care for and has demonstrated his love for us in this, that he shows mercy on those who do do not deserve it? 
but show no mercy to them. That's his command to his people. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Why? This word, F-O-R. Because for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. Now, is this cruel and unusual punishment? Is this some sort of genocide? I would contend to you, absolutely not. God will not. He's holy. He's not going to command his people to sin. Instead, something far greater and a little bit more nuanced is going on here. Well, what's going on? It is not genocide. The Canaanites and Perizzites and Jebusites and all the other ites that are in the promised land are not innocent people. They are heinous in the sight of a holy God. Why? Well, they, he wanted to eradicate unholy practices of, yes, idolatry, but that idolatry would lead to self-mutilation of cutting themselves. You remember this, this, this uh, incident with the Baal and Elijah and the prophets of Baal are all cutting themselves? That's what it meant to be holy, according to the Canaanites. That's what it meant to be holy in the promised land before God's people got there. Self-mutilation. They practiced barbaric traditions such as child sacrifice. They would literally bring their, their children to their gods to be burned alive as an offering to their God. God's going to tolerate that? God's going to be okay with God's image on the earth being desecrated in such a way? Absolutely not. They practice barbaric traditions. They, try, they also practice promiscuity and temple prostitution. So the way that that works is pretty easy. Oh, you go into the promised land as an Israelite, and you just saw God do awesome things, right? And you're in the promised land, and all of a sudden the Canaanites who are living amongst you, well, their, their, um, their husbands, their fathers are really devout in their religion. And do you know how they become devout in their religion? They just head to the temple and go sleep with a prostitute. Like, could you imagine how that would, that would break people down over generations to where, you know what, like, that seems a lot more fun and a lot easier to please my God. You can see how this all of a sudden twists and starts to pervert or could potentially pervert God's people and their devotion, especially in the day and age that we live in, over-sexualized day and age that we live in. Could you imagine if you lived here and there was temple prostitution that was the majority of what we're up to. It wasn't called human trafficking. It was called holiness. If you can imagine that world, we're not so far from it. And they also devoted themselves to complete and utter injustice. This is why God, when he judges his people eventually, he says to them, you have not exercised justice in the land. So, we can look at this and go, well, he's committing genocide and I just can't follow a God that would do that. Well, or we could look at the words of Adonai Bezek, or however she said it, probably right, in verse 7. You remember how he got judged? Cut off his thumbs and his toes? He's one of the people in the promised land that gets judged by God through God's people. And what is his response right here in the book of Judges? Well, he says this. Verse 7, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. I used to do that. That was fun for me somehow. As I have done, so God has repaid me. 
The people in Canaan that God judged through the people of Israel saw their judgment as just. They saw their own payment, their own pain as judgment from God, and it was just. How dare we then have revisionist history and look back and go, well, I mean, I just can't, you know, follow God that does things that I don't agree with. And that's the heart of it. That's the heart of the whole thing. Am I okay with God determining whom he is pleased with and whom he is not pleased with? Am I okay with with God being God? Or must I be? God can command what he wants. You see, if if I'm okay with him being king, being sovereign, being the Lord over everything, then he can command what he wants coming from the place of holiness, when he wants, against whom he wants. But if I am not okay with him being king, then I will struggle, struggle with every element of walking with God. I will struggle with every element of salvation, not just the conquest of the book of Joshua or the book of Judges, but eternal life of Jesus being the judge of heaven and hell, of separating the sheep and the goats. We'll cut that part of the Bible out too. And we'll start to wonder, and we'll create our own God. We'll have no king and set up for ourselves ourselves as God. See, that's at the heart of this whole thing. Am I okay with God determining all of life, or do I need to have a say in this thing? Which leads us now to the book of Judges. If Joshua is about how Israel to, came to conquer those in the land, Judges is about how Israel came to settle in the land. And the answer to that is poorly. Judges shows what happens when the Canaanite culture, the world around us, takes hold of our heart. So that's the context of the book of Judges. The second C that we need to unpack is the conquest. And just as the context was short-lived in one half of a verse, so will the conquest be short-lived in verses, uh, the end of verse one and two. Who, this is the beauty of of God's people, right? They enter into the book of, of Judges and into the promised land after Joshua dies, and it says right here in the second part of verse one, and the people of Israel inquired of the Lord. They were, they were interested in what God wanted. Beautiful. Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And that sounds like really good, but it is very short-lived. Judah does go up. Things start good for Israel. They take their concern to the Lord. They seek his will. And Judah goes on. Uh, he is chosen, and, he goes, and they go on. The whole tribe of Judah goes on to defeat the Canaanites and the Perizzites in at least eight different cities and regions. The narrative continues seeing the tribes of Joseph, Manasseh, Ephraim, Zebulun, Asher, and Naphtali all settling into their allotments in the promised land. These are all the 12 tribes of Israel, just as a little history. It sounds good, but the details are less encouraging, and I move on now to the third C, which is compromise. Right here, it begins in verse three. 
So the people of Israel go up, they ask the Lord, who shall, go, who, who shall we send to go up and, and take over the Canaanites? And the Lord answers very clearly, I want Judah to go. They're the most numerous uh, tribe of all of you. I want Judah to go take care of it. And in verse 3, the compromise begins. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me, that we may fight against the Canaanites, and likewise, I'll go with you into the territory allotted to you. Did God say Judah and Simeon? No. Instead, Judah began to do what we do. Well, Lord, I appreciate that answer, but I'd like to find my own way. Maybe I could just feather in some of my obedience or your obedience, obedience to you, with my own little good idea as well. And we start to maybe pull our friends along into our disobedience because it's a good idea it makes sense yeah, yeah it makes sense that, that more of us would make it easier to go and take down the Canaanites you know that God is not interested in easier he's interested in our obedience and in our love and in our devotion to him you see sin loves company and we'll disguise it in, in some sort of religious jargon along the way to loop our friends into our own disobedience if we're not careful. God tells us to do stuff all the time that we don't like. It's part of having another God besides you. If your God always agrees with you, it is not the God of the Bible. If your God never tells you to do something that you don't want to do, you're not serving the God of the Bible. You are serving the God in the mirror why God says in the book of James, hold up for God's word as a mirror. Don't look in the mirror at yourself and go, I look pretty good today. Hold yourself to the standard of scripture and you will realize, wow, I got a lot of things to confess. I got a lot of things to be assured of in God's forgiveness and his action on my behalf and not my own. So the tribes of Israel begin to settle, and the details, again, reveal they are not holding up to their end of the bargain to devote them to utter destruction, to show no mercy, and to not cut covenant with the people that are there. So I'm just going to run through this chapter really quickly just to highlight what the author is highlighting for us without a lot of the detail around it. Here's what we see. In verse 21, the tribe of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of, Gen of Benjamin. In verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants. Compromise starts to lead to disobedience in verses 30 and 33, where Israelites put the Canaanites to forced labor. Well, that's more convenient. I don't have to push them out, or, or dare I say, put them to destruction. I just can enslave them. That actually helps. That actually drives the economy a little bit. It's awful. It's heinous in God's sight. God strictly commanded them not to do that. And here they are doing it. The first thing they do in the promised land is enslave other humans. Been a human problem for a long time. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites, so Canaanites lived among them. You're seeing the theme. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants, so the Canaanites lived among them. Verse 31, the shift happens. They did not drive out the inhabitants, so the Asherites lived among the Canaanites. Did you see it? Before this, the Canaanites lived among the Israelites. Now, the Israelites, the Asherites, 
are living amongst the Canaanites. They're taking on their culture. No longer is Canaan trying to take on the culture of Israel. It goes on in verse 34. The Amorites then, it gets worse. Uh, in, sorry, verse 33. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants. They lived among the Canaanites. The shift is happening, the cultural shift, right after compromise, over and over and over again, do you start to see that compromise leaving a gaping exit wound in this whole deal? The Amorites then pressed the people of Dan back into the hill country, and we all thought to ourselves, I kind of like the hill country. I'll go there. I don't have to fight against the Amorites. I'd like to just maybe go where it's easier and more, but more beautiful, Right? We can, we can resonate with all of this. But if you notice the shift in the language, Israel moves from being the active participant in, in the conquest and taking over the land to now the passive participant. So in all of this, one big question looms for us. Where have you compromised? Where have you compromised God's desire for your life by compromising God's authority in your life? Are you aware of that as you're entering into 2024? Where have you compromised God's desire for your life by compromising God's authority in your life? Where he tells you to do something, even if it's on your own. And if you look at all of the Bible, typically God shows up to an individual, to Mary we just celebrated, right? To Joseph on his own when he's sleeping. To Abraham back in the day. To Moses, to David, to Samuel, to Saul. I mean, you keep going, and it's an individual that God shows up to that you then have to make the decision on your own. Will I obey him? Whether it alienates me from the people around us, or will I need to bring everybody else into this before I will step out in faith? Where are we compromising? You see, friends, God doesn't want just like 10% of your finances. He doesn't want one hour of your week. He wants it all. He authored it all. All of it is his. He is the king, and I'm not. That's why when Jesus came on the scene, he said stuff like this in Luke 9. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. You probably have that one memorized. Let's put it into practice in 24. For whoever would save his life, any part of it, any part of that life where I compartmentalize in my heart and I think I can just have like a safe room where Jesus can't get into because this locked behind all, these other, all this other tech that he can't get into, he already lives in there. And he wants you out. It's his house. He wants it all. Whoever would, would, would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? I remember doing a growth group a long time ago, and I kind of had that talk with my group. And I was like, hey, if you're sitting on the throne of your life, Jesus is going to come along, and he's going to kick the legs from underneath you and get off the throne. It's his. And they, this guy said, Jesus would never do that to me. Oh, I guarantee you he would. That's what life and tribulation and troubles are are typically all about. When we try to live our own life, that's what we're going to find in the book of Judges. We may not like that part of him, but remember, he did go into the temple. He did watch people as he made the whip, the cat of nine tails, right? As he did what he needed to do. 
to drive out sin from his father's home. He'll do the same thing for us. If you didn't know this, let me refresh your memory. The church means, it is the Greek word ekklesia. It means those who are called out. The fellowship of the called out ones. You, friends, have been called out from the culture around you. Don't go back into it without that same calling to head back into it, not to be like the world, but to be sent into the world to transform the world, to bring them to the one who is the word, who has everything they could ever want and need. We've been called out of that place. Let's remember our identity as we enter back into those spaces of school and work and whatever else is coming our way. Now, this all sounds pretty tragic, and it is, because the fourth C in chapter two is consequence. The angel of the Lord, which if you do some word studies on that, I'm not here to tell you declaratively like this is Jesus. But a lot of people think this is Jesus. Pre-incarnate Jesus showing up as the angel of the Lord. Even if it's not, it's the angel of the Lord. Like, this is the guy. You don't mess with this guy. The angel of the Lord shows up in verse 1 of chapter 2, and he presents consequence. Let me just read it. Now, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I brought you up out of Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. Remember? Remember how I said I was going to do that? Remember how faithful I've been? If you look back, look. I swore I would do it, and I did it. And I also said this, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive. I will not drive them out before you. You see the consequence of the compromise? God's power and presence and promise are now withdrawn. You haven't obeyed me. I will not drive them out from before you. It's not going to happen. The thing that I told you I was going to do, not happening anymore. But they shall become thorns in your sides. And their gods shall be a snare to you, just like I told you they would. Remember when I said don't do it? I meant don't do it. You've chosen to be disobedient. You've left me no choice but to make life really hard for you. Now, does that sound like a heinous, unjust God? Or does it sound like a father disobedient children? It sounds like a father disobedient children to me. I've tried to make your life easy. I've tried to give you the path to life. But you continue to choose death. You continue to go your own way. You continue to set yourself up as your own God. I have no other choice. You've left me no wiggle room here. And so, as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices, and they wept. And they called the name of that place Bochum, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Sounds like this part of the book of Judges ends really well, actually. The angel of the Lord 
shows up to them, shows them their sin, and they weep and worship. That's actually really beautiful. The problem is, this is the last time they do that. In all the rest of the book. But it does present for us an invitation. When God presents us with his standard instead of our own, what is our response? Well, I mean, you know, I didn't really hear you all that well. It was noisy when you were talking. Well, you know, I just didn't know if you really told me to do this. I just was thought maybe I could do a little bit of that, but also some of this. Surely you want my friends to come along with me, Simeon and Judah. See, God removes his promise. He removes his protection and removes his provision. And so as we close, how do you respond to God's desire for all of your life? How does he, how do you respond to that? What's your intake going into 2024 on Netflix, on social media, with your sex life, with the things that you do in the dark, when your wife's away, or your husband's away, or your kids are not around, or if you're a kid, what do you do when your parents aren't around? What do you do in those moments where you feel like you can get away with something? God wants that moment. He doesn't want the moment that are public. He wants every moment that led up to that choice right there. And every choice that we would make in the light or in the darkness. In our finances, in our integrity at work, in our eating, in our drinking, in our marriage, in our parenting, in our being parented. Do you know, just like, where are you in all of that? You've given up on whole life discipleship? Let me encourage you to come back, to not make yourself your own false god, but to surrender the king of kings. See, that's where all this points. That's where all this points. Judges introduces us to what it looks like when God's people set themselves up as their own king. And reminds us that no human king or judge will be able to corral our compromise or sin. Instead, it all points forward to our need, not for the solace of false gods, but the salvation of the one true God, our Savior, the one who came, the one who finally came at the end of Advent, who invited all people to come to him and worship him, just like the wise men did, our true Savior, our true judge, King Jesus. So if you do not know him in this room, you're here because it's the first of the year. You're going, man, I just want to start something new. Cool, we're glad you made it. The book of Judges is a bit of a foreign land. We'll welcome you in. We'll be tour guides along the way. We don't want you to just get to know the book of Judges. We want you to get to know the king that sits over the book of Judges. His name is Jesus. He came and he died for you. He came to be your king. He came to sit on the throne of your life. Your life is miserable without him being a king, whether you want to admit it or not. I know because I lived that life for a long time. And everybody in here that has come to submit to King Jesus can, can tell you, testify to you, I mean, when King Jesus got on my, the throne of my heart, my life got a lot better. When I sat on my own throne, misery. So it's not just about the Savior that's going to forgive your sins and then you go do whatever you want. The book of Judges is going to warn you against that one. This is about not just Jesus as Savior. This is about Jesus as King, as Lord. 
So friends, if you're not a believer, I, I, I just I plead with you to come and trust him, submit to him. I know it's a dirty word, but it doesn't have to be. It's really beautiful. We'll all submit to him. And if you are a believer and you've wandered and you've rebelled and you've gone, mm, I just would like to drink a little bit more than I need to. I just would like to dabble in a little bit of that porn. I would just like to really watch that Netflix series that I know got some things in it. I'd really just, look, look, this part of my life I want. And I just encourage you to surrender that in this new year. That we not set up for ourselves our own king, but submit to him and love him and worship him. Otherwise, we're faced with weeping. We're going to find it over and over and over again in the book of Judges. It won't be a discouragement as you think, but read ahead and you'll start to go, well, I don't know how we're going to do that one, but that's going to be interesting. But more than that, come to King Jesus. He's better. He's better than anything we've set up as our king. Let's pray. Lord, because you're better, we can have the freedom to fail. Doesn't mean we go running into failure and sin, but we can let down our guard and realize, hey, I'm not perfect. I don't have this together. Though I'm content, I, it's probably me. I've just talked myself into being content with this world without Jesus. Instead, Lord, I pray that you draw us close to you. I pray that where we've compromised, that you, you'd, you'd bring us back to conviction. All of us in this room have compromised this last week, probably this morning. Where we've hid that or covered that up, even with our own, like, oh, well, mm, whatever it may be, I pray that we would come to you digging up those old skeletons, presenting them to you as bones we don't want to dance with anymore. So would you take those skeletons in our closet? Would you take the sin... Remind us that you have taken it, Lord. Remind us that you have done away with it. Remind us that you have washed us new. Remind us by your spirit that you're with us and you'll never forsake us. Help us, King. Love you as King. May we do that by the presence and the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.